You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. In this episode, we're introducing you to Friday Inspirations, an internal project among the Mech's team. We started to keep our skills sharp and broaden our design horizons. You can find links to everything we discuss in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Do please also get in touch with your feedback. You can reach us on Twitter at MexFeed. Before we get started, a reminder that there's not long to go before the next Mex conference, Mex 16, being held in London on the 12th and 13th of October. Mex is a very different style of event where we push further to find the hidden methods to creating better user experiences. It brings together a diverse community of participants from all different industries, all different job backgrounds, and unites them in working together over a couple of days to share best practice and create new ideas for the future of experience design. It would be great to see members of the MEX community participating, and if you'd like to find out how you can get a ticket, take a look at mobileuserexperience.com and click on the conference section. Welcome everyone, I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of MEX. And I'm Alex Guest, the co-host of the MEX podcast. Well, it's great to be back recording another episode, Alex. How's the week treated you? Uh, my week has been indulgent. Um, I've recently got back from a, a, a lovely sunny trip in Sardinia, so no complaints from me. Ah, splendid. Okay, so you're no doubt going to be refreshed and bursting with ideas for this one, which is quite a, a wide open episode in many ways. What we thought we would do in this edition is look at some of the internal inspirations that we've been tracking within the MEX team. Um, so by way of a little bit of background on this, the three of us, uh, Alex, Patrizia and I, who are working together on MEX at the moment, um, were finding that we had a bit of a mess of different sources and ways of collaborating, probably not dissimilar to most teams that uh, work remotely and in uh, more ad hoc ways these days, um, and that it was becoming difficult to keep track of all of the different things that we were working on. But we knew that there were lots of different interesting inspirations and ideas coming in from all different sides. Uh, and we wanted to try and find a way to make more of those. Uh, and we settled on trying uh, a piece of collaboration software called Basecamp, um, which has proved to be uh, very well suited to the way we work together. Uh, and it turns out that Basecamp has a feature which Alex spotted uh, and set up, which has led to us, I guess, getting into a bit more of a conversation about some of the inspirations that we're all keeping track of within our daily reading. So what was it that you came across within Basecamp, Alex, which uh, led to this thing being set up? Mike, one of the features that... Um, Basecamp has is the ability of creating what they refer to as automatic check-ins. Uh, an automatic check-in is basically a recurring question, and it has some 
some built-in automatic questions. And, and these include things like, what are you working on? Are you blocked on anything? What did you work on today? Which to me sound, you know, fairly mundane and, and, and probably make sense if you're doing things like um, agile sprints and that sort of thing where, where you might want to have recurring questions of this kind. Um, but there was um, a, a fourth question that was built in, which was, see anything great lately that inspired you? And it struck me, given the subjects that uh, that we deal with, that it might be quite an interesting one to, to, to just to see what happens if we set this up as a weekly question. Uh, and, and every week, every Friday at 5 p.m., uh, it asks a question. You can answer it before the before the question actually gets asked or at any time in the week. But uh, but every Friday we get reminded uh, of this question, see anything great lately that inspired you? Um, and I, I guess part of the idea was uh, I, I know that we, we all have uh, fairly open minds to see what's, what's going on around us, but it might also just prompt looking out for things that could be interesting to share uh, between us um, that might then lead to a subject for a podcast or uh, something to, to weave into uh, the, the, the next conference itself or, or for whatever other reason, just something interesting to, to share between us. Um, and, and that's really the, the, the genesis of this, uh, of this idea. Well, I think, as you said, that's one of the reasons why it's become quite a compelling thing for the team is there's this old idea that uh, ideas become useful once they become usable. Uh, and I think it's helped to make that connection because clearly between the three of us, uh, we all spend a lot of time tracking various different things which interest us either relating directly to what we're doing within MEX or other interests. Uh, but having a way that we can actually put those into a usable form on a regular basis, uh, I think is one of the reasons why this has blossomed into something uh, a little bit more meaningful. And some of them are things which link very strongly or have led to things which, for instance, uh, we know are now going to make conference sessions in the future. Uh, some of them have just been things which have linked in a very tangential way to um, other bits of work uh, that we're doing. Um, but also, it's been a good way, I think, of learning a little bit about um, all of our other interests uh, outside of the stuff that we're doing day to day and getting to know a bit more about the people that you're working with. So in that sense, uh, I think it's proved a, a really valuable addition to the, the workflow of, of how we bring together mechs. Yeah, and, and one other thing, at least from my perspective, that was quite interesting was the the conversations that have ar arisen and, and how possibly just by positing the question and then getting an answer, we then get into a, a discussion that uh, at times has taken our, our thinking, our understanding of certain topics forward. So I suppose we should make this a little bit more tangible and actually go through some of these examples. And that's really going to be the format for this edition of the podcast. Um, in a way, it's a, a bit of an expansion of those show and tell uh, things that we have done in previous episodes with our interview guests. Uh, but this is going to be a bonus edition where we're going to go through a bunch of them sourced directly from that internal base camp question that we've uh, been using within the MEX team. Um, so do you want to go first, Alex, and, and give us an example to get started so that uh, the listeners can have a sense of the kind of things we've been looking at? Yeah, the first, um, the first subject that I wanted to bring up today, and actually the first one that I, that I shared uh, on, on Basecamp, came from the Sci-Fi London 48-hour film challenge. Uh, Sci-Fi London has, has this film challenge. It's, it's a weekend challenge, uh, and, and you get together with, with a small group uh, and produce a short sci-fi film. Um, I've never participated in this, but I, I think it's a, a great idea. Um, I'm a big lover of film and, and um, 
it's it's great to see the sorts of things that can be put together in a short space of time given um, a, a theme, uh, a line of text that has to be in the uh, in the film and, and various other parameters. Um, now, and- how did you come across this one? Because I think that's also one of the interesting things about having a, a system like this in place is that you know the the very fact that you have discovered this perhaps says a little bit about your interests outside of the day-to-day of, of what we're doing with mechs. And I think until you posted this, I didn't, for instance, realise that you had that um, additional interest in film, for instance. But what was the actual source of this for you and, and how did it then become something that we looked at within Basecamp? Um, I came across the 48-hour film challenge probably a couple of years ago, just after I had done a short um, online course in, you know, just a basic grounding in, 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 in filmmaking. Um, and uh, part of that, I think, linked through to the 48-hour film challenge. And, and I've just been sort of paying attention to it, thinking about it for a little while. Um, and can't remember exactly how I came across the specific story that I'm about to get into, um, but read in Ars Technica about... Um, uh, a particular film that had been put together for the 2016 uh, challenge that had been, the script for it had been written uh, using artificial intelligence. Yeah, now this is where my interest in it really picked up because, of course, we had the previous episode where we spoke in some depth with Nathan Benich of Playfair Capital, an investment firm specialised in investing in, in AI companies. Uh, so we'd already had that sort of focus within uh, artificial intelligence and how it relates to design going on within the MEX initiative. So when I saw that, immediately my attention was was piqued by this. Yeah, in, indeed, Mark. And we've also spoken quite a lot about creativity and creating uh, as, as a specific theme within, within the MEX forum. Um, and, and so for me, combining those two aspects, I thought, you know, this could be quite interesting to, to share. But let, let, me, let me share a little bit more about this. It's, 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 uh, it's a sci-fi film, of course. It's part of the uh, Sci-Fi London film challenge, as I said. And um, the, the way it works is, or the way it, it, was, it was written was by feeding into this uh, artificial intelligence machine um, a lot of scripts, hundreds of scripts from other sci-fi films, um, including all the scripts from all the X-Files films, uh, X-Files episodes, uh, which, which amounts to a lot, um, and, and seeing uh, what sort of a script um, this, this engine produces. They, they call the engine Benjamin. Um, uh, and seeing what Benjamin can produce and, and, and by, by saying, okay, this is going to be a 10-minute film and it has to contain certain uh, certain elements. Um, it, it produced what was a fairly unusual script that clearly required a lot of interpretation. But not only did it produce a film script, it also produced a, a song with some, some fairly poignant lyrics. Yes, and I'd really recommend that listeners go and check out both the song lyrics and the video itself. Because when I saw this after Alex posted it, that was the point at which you start to realise there's something rather interesting going on here. My experience, at least, of watching how that script was then enacted uh, was that on what on level it seemed very normal, on the other level uh, there was that underlying sense that there was something not quite right 
about the way in which this was being done, which perhaps is a reflection on the state of artificial intelligence as it stands at the moment. But can you explain a bit more uh, for listeners how uh, that was actually produced? They took this script, which had been generated by Benjamin, the artificial intelligence engine, but then they actually got a a team of uh, actors to then create the the film off the the back of this. Yes, that's right. And... and, and, um... Uh, I, I guess the film, through the choice of words uh, in the script, had a certain feel to it, and and but it, it really required a lot of interpretation because actually, if if you read through it, it doesn't really make sense. Individual blocks of words somehow do. Sometimes, sometimes the sentences really don't make any sense at all. But it's in in I, I guess in the director and the actors' minds, um, the the the, the the words suggested a certain dramatization and, and at times it's yeah you know the emotion that unfolds through 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 the uh, through the interplay between the actors is is quite interesting because they go from 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 agitation to, to sadness to anger um, and and to through through various other um, emotions and and um, there's even at one point a, a dream sequence um, which isn't signposted as a dream sequence in the script but it has been interpreted as such. Um, so, so it's, it's um, yeah, it's really interesting to see. And as you say, it, it, it'll, it, we're a little way away from having uh, even short film scripts written by AI. But I, I, I don't know how far away we are. Um, and certainly the, the organizers of the challenge have said, please don't do it again. <laughs> I mean, it certainly does leave you with quite a, a disconcerting feeling after watching something like that. And the actors, all credit to them, I think, do an amazing job of interpreting what, if you read it as text on the screen, um, does make very little sense in terms of its overall flow. But the way in which they put it uh, into a, into the performance and the emphasis that they use and, and the way in which they convey certain emotions or, or they read in certain emotions to what is within the script is really what makes it a very interesting piece of, of film to watch. And I suppose in, in many ways that does um, tell you a lot about where we are with artificial intelligence currently, that uh, there is that need still for the relationship between things which are output by artificial intelligence engines uh, and then some kind of human interpretation and that humans still have this unmatched ability to do things like pattern recognition, the kind of stuff that we're doing subconsciously um, throughout our days without even realising what's going on and yet is crucial to how we make sense of the world, uh, how we understand the kind of digital interfaces within our lives uh, and that at the moment you still very much need that level of interpretation rather than just being able to take the raw output of of artificial intelligence and and do something with it. Um, But it it will be interesting to see whether or not this plays more of a role. I mean, I I don't think um, you'd qualify it as artificial intelligence or machine learning in the way that it's being understood currently but there does seem to be now um, a much greater emphasis on uh, crowdsourcing information about people's uh, watching preferences to influence the kind of uh, series which get produced by the likes of Netflix and, and Amazon where they're using the data about what people are watching what people are enjoying to actually specify what they then concentrate on commissioning 
uh, and having produced as as pieces of film, uh, which I guess is quite a significant change from how this would have been done in the past, where obviously it was a lot more manual and speculative uh, in the way that people had you know, a particular artistic vision and they put it out there in the world and they hope for the best. There's already a lot more data being used in that kind of thing, even if it's not yet being processed through an AI engine in the way that, that Benjamin here has created the, the science fiction film. Yeah, and, and, and the thing that Benjamin does actually is is it's... Um... By, by dissecting the script, it's it, it's it, the, or, the, or the, rather the, all the scripts that are fed into it, it it learns which uh, words and phrases tend to tend to come together, and and so you get those those types of phrases that you expect in sci-fi to 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 you know just and and they, and they occur in, in the script that it produces as a result of that, um, and and so that, that's sort of quite interesting, and I, and I think if you at some point. Um, this idea that you can predict what people want to watch, and uh, from from what they've enjoyed watching, and feed in those those the scripts from the things that they've enjoyed into uh, something like Benjamin. I suspect that from there we will start getting uh, genuine screenplays that that have plot and meaning and 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 so on. Uh, even if we're not quite there yet. Yeah, and it's not uh, without its poetry already. Uh, again, we'll put links in the show notes to this so that people can go and take a look. But some of the song lyrics, as you say, are quite poignant. So Benjamin is obviously onto something, even if he's not yet fully formed as an artist. Uh, some of the lyrics are, I was a beautiful day. I was a taller talk that I was born and I was ready to go. So Benjamin's having a few deep thoughts, perhaps, but maybe not quite yet at the level of director extraordinaire. <laughs> not, not quite, not quite. Uh, so let's look at uh, another example, um, which actually relates to this in the sense that uh, it's being uh, influenced by artificial intelligence and machine learning. So one of the ones which... I came across and posted into our little Basecamp inspirations flow was DeepArt, uh, which you can find at deepart.io. Uh, and this came out of uh, the Artificial Intelligence Summit uh, organized by Playfair Capital and, and Nathan, which uh, I went to shortly after the episode that we recorded with him. And they were one of the uh, examples that was being presented there to kind of represent the state of the art of where we are with artificial intelligence. And what I found so intriguing about this was the way in which it was able to separate the style of images from their content. So to give you any idea of the, the flow of this, uh, what you can do is you can upload any image to DeepArt uh, and then you can tell it to apply the style of a certain artist or indeed you can extract the style of a particular image uh, from one that you have submitted yourself uh, and then do that process in reverse. And while the results which uh, are created off the back of this will probably look fairly familiar to anyone who's used things like Photoshop filters or uh, new apps like Prisma, which seems to be uh, making a, a big splash at the moment. Uh, the engine behind it uh, is doing it in uh, quite a smart way using what they call a very deep convolutional network. Uh, and that's a slightly different kind of algorithm 
uh, as I understand, to the one which was used to by Benjamin to generate the script uh, in Alex's example. And we are seeing these uh, different approaches now with uh, the different kind of algorithms that are being applied to these machine learning problems, which is leading to some rather different uh, kinds of output. Um, so, so Marek, are you able to, to explain the difference between a very deep convolutional network versus a long short-term memory neural network? You know, if you'd have asked me this question at an earlier point during the day when I was absolutely on the top of my game, I'm sure I would have been able to. But at this time of the afternoon, it, it's just a little beyond me, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> that and, of course, I would probably also need to study for a PhD for a number of years. I mean, there is some serious science behind this stuff. And um, unfortunately, uh, for me, it is very much um, you know the periphery of, of my knowledge. But there are some great sources out there to go and learn about it. Um, Playfair Capital, the guys who organized the summit where I found out about this, uh, run various different newsletters and meetup groups, uh, which are well worth checking out if you have an interest in this area uh, and to get a bit more uh, of a, a feeling for the, the science uh, behind it. But at this stage, um, for our purpose, I think it's probably best to just say they're two different algorithms. That's about as far as I can manage on a Friday afternoon. I think one of the fascinating things, uh, coming back to the actual specifics of, of Depart, this idea that you, you separate the style from the content, um, and and clearly this is now, you know, in, in case of in, in the example of Depart, it, it's it's specifically looking at images. Um, I guess something like this could also be applied to things like language. Um, and and I, I know, having studied a little bit of literature in, in the past, in the long distant past, that you can tackle similar sorts of of content, and and and, and yet the style of the of the writer would would have a dramatically different effect on on the the, the work that's that's created. And I, and I suspect that at some point, something like Depart could also be uh, interlaced with something like Benjamin, actually, so that you know um, you might have a, a, a sci-fi movie that's produced uh that's that's written in, in one particular style and, and and actually be able to determine that it's quite different from the style of another one that ability to uh, understand nuances like that you know, i think is um a really intriguing development within this area of, of artificial intelligence uh, and tells you something about the level of sophistication uh, which is growing uh, and may become possible as this advances further. It's something that for a human is innate to be able to look at a, a series of paintings within a gallery, for instance. And even if you don't know who the specific artists are who have created them, uh, your brain is able to recognize that there is a group of paintings which clearly have done been done by one artist. There is another group of paintings which have been done by another. And you don't need an especially detailed artistic knowledge to be able to do that. It's just something which is hard-coded into the, the human brain to be able to interpret that kind of thing. Well, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I mean, if you even looking at sort of more popular culture, you can quite, it's quite easy to tell the difference between, say, a Pixar movie from from one produced by by the Japanese anime firm Studio Ghibli. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which, when you think about, it, is an amazing thing for our brains to be able to do, and and very difficult 
for a computer to be able to replicate. It's those sort of challenges which once computers are able to do that, I think we then start to access a new level of capability with artificial intelligence, which can be applied to all kinds of different challenges. I mean, if we think specifically about some of the things, for instance, within the MEX initiative, which have been interesting us around uh, input mechanisms and, and the way in which people interact with different devices, there are now discussions going on uh, and prototypes out there, for instance, which are able to interpret the nuances of how you're interacting with, say, a touchscreen device uh, and use that as a way of um, uh, applying a layer of security to it. So in the same way that you have a distinctive fingerprint or a distinctive iris, uh, there is a distinctive way in which we all interact with our touchscreens, a pattern uh, of gestures or the speed between the different taps that we have on the touchscreen, all of which create this uh, kind of uh, fingerprint of, of our usage patterns, uh, which may be a way of detecting, for instance, when a device is being used by someone that it shouldn't be able to. Uh, so once you can start to apply it to those kind of problems, you can see that there's a whole range of different applications that this could uh, go into within the, the digital experience field. Now, you drew the distinction between what is natural to, to, for humans to be able to de determine uh, between different styles. Um, and, and, I, and that, in a sense, uh, I think brings me to, to, to my second example, which uh, is all about Cameron's Lament. Cameron's Lament um, was effect, it, it was the, the, the little ditty that David Cameron, uh, you may have heard on, on, on the news or, or on the radio, uh, David Cameron, after he resigned as, as Prime Minister, uh, sort of hummed or, 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 yeah, not quite hummed, but, but um, uh, voiced a, a little ditty, a little tune, um, which uh, was captured on the, the mic that he was wearing on his lapel uh, as he returned back indoors to, to number 10. I don't know if uh, you're a fan of the books, but I couldn't help but be reminded of Winnie the Pooh when uh, he came <laughs> up with his little ditty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I'm, I'm not going to, 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 to try uh, and replicate um, this particular, particular theme. Yeah, uh, it was a bit inimitable, really. I think uh, that's one for David Cameron to uh, keep for his own for posterity's sake. I'm not quite sure who owns the copyright on it. <laughs> But does the government, does the Conservative Party? Well, uh, I suppose in that moment of, of transition right there, you know, it creates some interesting uh, copyright distinctions. Absolutely. Um, but so, so um, what, was, what was interesting here is that um, a, a number of, of uh, musicians was, was suddenly influenced by this little ditty to, to go and write pieces of music. And now Classic FM has, has pulled together some of these, some of these musical interpretations um, which which are really quite incredible in, in their their breadth and range, both of in in, in style and 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 in, and in content. So we have we have a, a four voice choir, or rather it's 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 eight people, but it's it's four voices in a in a sort of a, a barbershop style uh, singing um, the a fairly accurate rep representation of of the of the ditty, um, and and that sort of contrasts with. Uh, um, uh, with a, a waltz, uh, and then um, we also have a, a, a large piece of, of organ music, which had quite a, a sort of strong dynamic to it, with with um, you know the big uh, foot pedals being used as well as sort of some of the higher notes. 
um, and and through to a full sort of symphony that had been written for for um, uh, well for a symphony orchestra basically with uh, using um, uh, using some of the music uh, com- com- uh, composition software that's available. Well, uh, that variety just in itself, I think, is something which really fascinated me about this. I mean, I was amazed when I followed your link to the Classic FM page, which again we'll put in the show notes so people can go and check this out. What they'd managed to amalgamate within a very short period of time uh, really does shine a light on um, either how much creativity there is out there in the world um, or just how much free time people have now in the sense that there was this amazing breadth. You know, Within a few hours of this ditty being captured and shared on the news, there was suddenly this explosion of creativity of people who had seen that uh, and had riffed on it in all the various different ways, as you say, from waltzes to full choral versions. Uh, yeah, and to see that happen so rapidly off the back of what was perhaps... 10 seconds, if that, uh, being uttered by the the Prime Minister, uh, was really quite remarkable. Yeah, and and you say, you know, free time, but actually um, there's there's a particular composer, Thomas Stewart-Jones, who composed a a fantasy. Um, And and, um, apparently he wrote this at at 2 a.m. over the course of two hours, uh, the night after after hearing this. So he he was clearly, I mean, really... uh, captivated by by this little tune. What does that tell us about what's going on within digital at the moment? Uh, because, you know, at one level, this is a, a fascinating bit of political commentary, I guess, and, you know, a good bit of fun for the, the people involved. But at another level, it gives us a slice in time about what's going on in mid-2016, about the kind of tools that are out there, both for creating this kind of stuff, recording it and then distributing it, which if you think back even a few short years, is something that I don't think could have happened at this scale and certainly at this speed without the kind of creative tools that we all now carry in our pockets uh, or have uh, access to on our, our laptops or you know other computers uh, in a much more globally distributed way uh, than we have done previously. Yeah, and and um, and actually, there's, there's there's another piece here. If you recall, Marek, a year ago, we were talking about the intersection between consuming and creating, and um, the 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 initial stimulus here is uh, simply a news report carrying uh, a, a little bit of um, well, it's it's not even music. It's 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 just a, a, a it's sort of an emotional voicing of of whatever it was, whatever emotion it was that that David Cameron was was releasing through through his ditty, and and the fact that that can be disseminated so broadly isn't really that new because I suppose it might have been caught anyway and and, and transmitted on on the news, but there's 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 there, there's so many channels for for disseminating news, and by by channels I don't mean TV channels, I mean uh, media channels, whether it's online or, 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 or TV or radio, or whatever else, that uh, small things of this kind do that, that, that are really inconsequential do get broadcast or transmitted in some way to very wide audiences, um, and and um, things that are insignificant suddenly have a significance for for a proportion of the population, and the tools that exist, as you say, to to then quickly grasp that uh, that influence and then transform that through various means um, into into actual 
pieces of music. And, and here we're talking about people who have either used video cameras to capture themselves playing the piano, for example, or whether it is uh, composing something on, on a piece of software, uh, which can then um, uh, replay that music and, and, and so forth. And the fact that, you know, some of, some of these um, uh, pieces have been uploaded to, to YouTube or to Facebook or whatever else, and then have then been aggregated onto a website that is, uh, that is uh, published by a, a traditional radio company, Classic FM, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's such a diversity of different technologies um, that are being supported by uh, a strong infrastructure, and, uh, you know, that ultimately allow allow this, this as we were talking last year, this intersection between consuming and, and creating again. Yeah, it feels like a real maelstrom at the moment. So, as you say, those traditional media channels and new digital tools and the ways in which they're all being linked together like that. And uh, I think those moments of intersection that we were looking at a year or so ago um, feel like something which is poised to accelerate. If you look at the way in which now some of the major uh, companies influencing the development of digital tools are starting to go, uh, I think we're going to see more and more of those tools. I don't. Did you catch any of the uh, announcement of the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 uh, over the last few days? No, I missed that. So this is their big new flagship device and probably the uh, smartphone within their portfolio, which is uh, most closely correlated with uh, that kind of creative spirit because it has the uh, S Pen stylus, which is is built into the device. And each time it comes out, they always introduce uh, a suite of additional features that you can do with the S Pen. And I've used it myself as a a daily device in the past. I had the Samsung Galaxy Note 4 for a while and very much enjoyed using things like the S Pen with it. But one of the new things that they've introduced is the ability uh, for any piece of uh, content um, shown as a video on the screen to be able to use the S Pen stylus uh, to just draw a box around that video as it's playing uh, and instantly turn it into uh, a GIF, which can then be shared on social media, you know, whatever format that you want, including annotating it with your own speech bubbles and, you know, doing little drawings on there. Uh, and to me, it seemed a great example of some of those uh, missing bits that we identified last year during that intersection project, uh, which were um, I guess holding people back a little bit from being able to act on that very human impulse that once you've consumed something interesting, be it Cameron's ditty when he resigned or you know the latest track that's been released from your favourite group, whatever it is, there's often that urge to do something creative with it. Uh, and yet the tools for doing those things have been quite separate. But now we're starting to see uh, these kind of things emerging from major manufacturers, which really meld those two things together and into a cohesive experience. And once that starts to happen, I think we're going to see many more of these kind of uh, waltzes and uh, choral interpretations of things like Cameron's Lament, because it's just going to be so much easier for people to do. Yeah, and I, and I think that is exactly one of the things that we, we were discussing last year is, is how handset and device manufacturers can uh, aid that process. So it's, um, I, I guess it's great to see um, Samsung uh, actually taking that on, not that they necessarily were listening to us. Indeed. Well, uh, if people would like to check it out, we will obviously put a link in the show notes. You can go and have a look at the essay and the various different UI sketches and all that kind of good stuff which came out of that project. 
Uh, so let's have a look at another uh, example. Um, now this one, I guess, comes from uh, a slightly uh, different uh, angle in the sense that um, it's something which exists very much within the, the physical world, something that you can go and see for yourself. Uh, and that's a, a new exhibition at the Natural History Museum, which is looking at the evolutionary relationship between how eyes developed within uh, nature uh, and how colour developed within nature. Now, I came across this one uh, as an article in the Financial Times Weekend magazine. Uh, and it's one of those things that once you read about it, suddenly seems very obvious, but hadn't really occurred to me prior to getting stuck into this article, which is that uh, those two capabilities within the natural world evolved very much side by side. So as the eyes of predators improved, um, so the ability for, for instance, prey animals to change their coloration or to camouflage themselves in different ways or to have sharper eyes to be able to uh, avoid being um, spotted by these uh, these predators or to be avoid being chased by them, uh, evolved in, in tandem with each other. Uh, and the article in the FT magazine did a fascinating job of, of really um, going through all of this uh, and highlighting some of the things which uh, they're showing at the, the Natural History Museum in London. Uh, and it got me thinking about you know, how uh, those ocular abilities, which we all have, are so fundamental to the way in which we interact, for instance, with digital interfaces. Uh, and that actually, once you start going back to some of those first principles and understanding how those things evolved and why they evolved, it can actually give you some really sound uh, underlying understanding of uh, the ways in which we might design better for those kind of situations. Um, uh, I know uh, you're a fan of um, exhibitions and outings in London, Alex. Have you had a chance to take a look at this one yet? Is this on the list of things to do? I, I haven't been to this one, no. Um, but actually, the last thing I, I went to uh, a couple of weekends ago, just before going away on holiday, was um, the, the, the RA's uh, summer exhibition, which, which is always uh, very interesting in terms of the, the, the vast range of work that's, that's put on display there. But, but com coming back to, to the Natural History Museum, um, it w uh, what other implications are there in terms of this sort of a evolution in terms uh, it, for, for, for the way that we actually design devices or, or, uh, or applications or, or processes, do, do you think? But I think at one level, in a very physical sense, um, I have always had an interest in uh, the kind of colour palettes which are used within the mobile device industry in particular. Uh, there was a piece uh, on uh, the MEC site from several years ago now where we did a direct contrast between uh, the colour ranges of devices that were available uh, in typical Western markets like the UK and the US uh, where Essentially, it was just this sea of silvers, white if you are lucky, blacks, that kind of thing, uh, with what was going on within the Japanese market at the time, where if you looked at the uh, catalogue of one of the major operators there, of the kind of devices that they're arranging, it was just this rainbow of different colours and textures that were available to consumers. And there was a much greater emphasis within uh, Japan, which at the time was quite a, a closed, unusual 
market within the mobile device world because a lot of the devices that were being developed and, and sold were all done so just on, on a local basis. Um, but there was a real contrast there. And that was something which improved considerably um, over the last several years. Uh, Nokia, for instance, got much more into having a, a diverse color palette and other people copied them. And we've seen a greater range of colors coming out from Apple with the, the iPhone, for instance. Um, and in that sense, you know, I think there's just a, a very direct link here between the sort of colors which are satisfying to our eyes and the sort of things that we like to project as choices about our own fashion sense and identity, um, which could be better reflected within the, the mobile device world and clearly going back to those sort of first principles about why certain colors mean that the things they do uh, in nature in different cultures uh, could be a, a good source of, of inspiration for that um, i guess at a slightly more tangential level um, it's also something which has uh, prompted us to start thinking about uh, all of those different forms of signage that we have uh, within the, uh, the physical world and how that relates to our expectations of things in the digital world. And this now has become a bit of an open project within the MEX uh, initiative, where if you search for the hashtag MEX Science on Twitter, you'll see we're now starting uh, to collect from all kinds of different sources examples uh, of this different uh, signage from the natural world, from the, the digital world, uh, to try and get a bit of an understanding of the ways in which colour and form uh, are being interpreted by our eyes. Uh, and uh, what that means in terms of how we uh, navigate the world and how we look for things like danger or opportunity within the world. Uh, and the idea, I think, is to see how um, that kind of catalogue of, of images evolves over the next little while as part of this open project, but then most likely try and pull some insights out of that uh, and see if we can get some creative thinking going about what that might mean for the next generation of uh, this kind of digital signage, uh, the, the sort of user interface architectures, um, which might emerge for, for the next generation of devices, be they smartphones with touchscreens or some of the more esoteric things we started to look at recently around virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, and those kind of devices as well. Yeah, the, the, the whole subject of, of signs and, and signifiers is, is one that has me um, fairly fascinated at the moment. Um, and and uh, as a little bit of a digression, I, um, I hired a car uh, while away, and it was a small little four-door car. Now, the only thing is that despite the fact that it was a four-door car, it took me a little while to realize what I had to do to actually open the rear doors. At first, I thought I had to open them from the inside, which seemed a sort of a strange child lock uh, system, or, or perhaps it was to stop predatory people getting into the rear doors. I couldn't quite figure it out. And, and it was all because the, the usual placing of the handles um, simply wasn't there. It was the the, the placing and the colouring meant that I, I just simply hadn't noticed that there that it was possible to open the car doors from the outside. Uh, you know, th thereby sort of you know breaking the, the the language and the expectation of me as as as, as a user uh, of um, how to open a car door. And and while that might make me seem particularly stupid, I I prefer to suggest that maybe the designer. Uh, while trying to be clever and, and sort of achieving a level of cleverness, also succeeded in completely baffling me. Um, <laughs> uh, how, how long had you been out in the sun at this point, may I ask? <laughs> well, it, not that long. Maybe it was, I just come, I had just landed actually, and and you know it was it was dark and my my plane was delayed and so forth. So 
uh, you know, we could put it down to that. Well, I guess it just goes to show that we are uh, incredibly smart uh, as humans with our ability to interpret these patterns. Yeah, a bit like we were talking about with the artificial intelligence stuff before, until we're not in the sense that once you get taken outside of your realm of experience uh, and your kind of um, cultural uh, exposure, which is familiar to you, um, all of a sudden things which are very obvious to people uh, who do have familiarity with those things or have been brought up within that kind of uh, culture uh, where that particular product or service has come from, um, there's that real disconnect between those who are able to understand it and those who are not. Uh, and we did a thing um, within the MEX initiative, both a, a session, a creative session at one of the events and also something which was then subsequently published at mobileuserexperience.com, looking at some of those principles about how you build trust within digital interfaces. And the key thing which emerged from that was that this idea that culture uh, and prior experience trumps everything. So unless you're doing your user research about what people's expectations are of certain interfaces, it doesn't matter how clever or how beautifully visually designed or how logical it is uh, to the designer that's creating these things unless it relates to something within someone's experience or, or cultural background it's unlikely that they're a going to be able to use it in an intuitive way uh, and b subsequently come to trust it yeah and and um exactly and and uh, so so quite recently i've been i've been reading um a bit of a classic uh, don norman's the design of everyday things um, and and he, he he speaks and he says it very clearly um, to to designers who read this who, who read his his book very specifically do not blame people when they fail to use your products properly take people's difficulties as signifiers of where the product can be improved and so forth so it's it's really you know if if getting the design right is, is about getting it right for for the individual in a way that really makes sense and and one of the subjects that that he and and indeed others such as Daniel Kahneman talk about are, are, are you know doors that that don't open the right way um, you know because the that there's a handle that suggests pull when it's actually you know the door needs to be pushed and, and things of this kind so getting getting the the, the, the sign uh, right um, is is fairly fairly fundamental in in, in, in uh, communicating what it is that the that the device or the machine or the or the piece of software um, should do for the user. Yeah, I mean, it's fundamental to experience design, I think, to be able to present things in a way which makes sense to the background of, of your users. Um, I, I came across a, a similar example, actually, to this um, when I was looking at some of the work that's already been done around uh, signage within the digital world in relation to this Mech Signs project. And there's a guy called uh, Luke uh, Robluski, who I'm sure will be familiar to many of the listeners of this podcast. He speaks very widely on, on different um, subjects around digital design. He's now product director at Google. Uh, but he was referring referring to uh, a study which was done about the hamburger menu, which has become a bit of a default now within apps, the little three lines that are used to pull out uh, additional options uh, versus using the word menu on its own. Uh, and there've now been a few of these studies done and time and again, menu being written just as a word comes out as being more effective than that three-line hamburger menu. Now, for people, I guess, who work within digital, that's something which has become familiar to them. It seems like a clever device of reducing screen clutter. Uh, but for the vast majority uh, of 
so-called average users out there in the world. I'm not sure I agree there's any such thing as an average user, but for the majority of people who are using these products day to day, there's still a lack of understanding about what that means. And the word simply spelled out is a more effective way of communicating with them. And doesn't really take up much more space, to be honest. No, indeed. And uh, if you look at the sort of engagement levels which come off the back of these things, they also started to go into a bit more depth looking at things like what happens uh, once you remove uh, those kind of titled panel options from the top of an app screen. So where you might have, um, for instance, you know, a, a series of uh, three tabs across the screen identifying uh, each one um, with a particular word versus if you then start to hide those off in a side menu which has to be pulled out. Uh, and again, time and again, the levels of engagement between those different sections goes down as soon as you take it away from that very sort of obvious uh, visual tabbing with a, a clear text identifier compared to doing something which for a lot of interaction designers seems like a much more advanced and swishy sort of thing to do to have it in a little panel which swipes in from uh, from the left without it having to be uh, consistently on screen and yet for average users just doesn't seem to to generate the same levels of engagement. It's a comp complex and complicated balance to to achieve ha having a, a, an interface that isn't so cluttered with with, with buttons and, and and menus while still making it uh, usable and and uh, engaging um, so that's that's uh, that's one for the designers to, to work on I guess indeed so um, we had another couple of examples I think to look at. Uh, from our Basecamp inspirations. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your final one? I uh, recently came across an app called uh, Paziz. Uh, Paziz is an app which um, uses sound to uh, help the user sleep. It, it's, it's, um, it, it plays a variety of different sounds and, it, and uh, the idea is you can either play it for a short period of time or you can play it throughout the whole night um, and uh, it's supposed to help you sleep. Um, uh, one of the um, one of the interesting things that, that um, the app has now moved on to is is looking at how to help you get in the zone and get stuff done, as it says. And it's produced a a, a, a prototype track, a ninety minute prototype track, which will ultimately end up in the app as as a, a track that can be customized to different lengths of time, I imagine. And 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 they've they've used the, the the science of sound that they've been using for for uh, sleep improvement to help um, individuals focus on getting their work done more effectively um, and and some some of the and, and, and actually maybe I would just uh, quote more or less directly from 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 what um, the director of sound design at, at Paziz has to say about it Yes, uh, I recall he used some quite impressively uh, scientific language about exactly what they were doing with this. Well, he, he says that, you know, uh, the research they've done indicates several correlations between musical and uh, sonic components uh, and elements of what we generally call focus, uh, namely tempo and affective emotive intensity uh, are highly relevant. Studies show that up-tempo music significantly increases the performance of processing tasks um, and uh, likewise, free recall and phonemic fluency benefit from background music that stimulates affective emotive reactions uh, rather than emotionally neutral music, white noise or silence. Um, I, I don't know about you, Marek, but I had to just check exactly what was meant by phonemic fluency. 
um, and, and it seems to be to do with uh, language processing um, and your ability to, to, to sort of put um, words together and, and language together. Well, uh, I guess I took a, a slightly more basic interpretation from it, um, which is that really for future episodes of the podcast, if we want to fit it within a shorter time frame, we need some pounding techno in the background, something really <laughs> upbeat to keep us on pace here. You know, if things look like they're getting a bit slow in the middle, perhaps that's the time at which we need to just kick in a, a bit of a techno track. Well, apparently what's really needed is a full carry wave binaural beat creating a polyrhythm and hemispherical crosstalk. Uh, you see, that was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> um, but, but actually the, 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 the track does apparently um, help people concentrate. It has, uh, it has some fans that have said they are uh, pretty keen on it and it's helped them concentrate on tasks that are uh, difficult, complex or, or, or boring. Um, so perhaps something that's... Uh, that there's worth trying out next time you have a particularly complex bit of work to do on your own. Well, I mean, joking aside, um, this role of, of sound uh, in the way um, we work and how it affects our emotions is something which interests me hugely. Uh, earlier this year, uh, I was learning about something called the Sync Project, uh, which is um, a project of Marco Atazari and some colleagues. Marco Atazari was the guy who led design at Nokia for a long time. Uh, and they're looking at how they can use particular combinations of music to affect people's uh, emotions and mood uh, and perhaps also their physical health as a result of that uh, and have developed a platform which allows them to uh, track using um, uh, quite a widespread network of sensors the effects that these different musical uh, and sound variations are having uh, on users so they can actually start to get some detailed data uh, about how that actually uh, is impacting people and they talk about the idea of music as a precision medicine, uh, which uh, I suppose in many ways is relating to what they're trying to do with this app here as well. Um, and interesting to see that they are expanding from, you know, what I suppose has been their core so far is an app that's grown up around the idea of getting people to relax and, and drop off to sleep, uh, but that are actually, they're finding that if they vary that, they can have quite the opposite effect on people. Yeah, that was one of the things that was, was particularly interesting for me too. It's the ultimate pivot in many ways, you know, to pivot from being the sleep company to being the get stuff done company. Yeah, well, I, I guess if you just get into a certain flow, you can either flow yourself to sleep or, or, or flow yourself through your work or, or something like that. It's not necessarily the, 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 the way that the, 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 uh, the acoustic scientist might put it, but uh, that's, that's, uh, that works for my own uh, uh, map of, of the world. Well, this is one that I'd be keen to uh, keep track of because, uh, you know, I think there is something in this idea of how uh, sound affects our emotions. We've looked at it several times over the years in various different forms at the MEX event and in different studies that we've done. There was a whole session that we did as the opening of um, a MEX conference. I think this was about perhaps five years ago now, uh, where we actually spent the first session of the event uh, blindfolding people and having them listen to three very different original compositions by a chap called Peter PDX Drescher, uh, who is a, a well-known audio designer within um, technology circles. And he'd created these original compositions, which had a very different feel to them. Uh, and we then asked people to uh, draw or write uh, their reaction straight afterwards after they'd listened to these different tracks. Uh, and the variation 
in feelings and interpretations that we got off the back of that kicked off a really interesting conversation about just how underutilized the dimension of sound was within uh, mobile experience design at the time. And I'd say probably, you know, still, um, at least in the, the role of, of how it uh, influences interface design within uh, mobile devices, um, but that it could have a really uh, powerful thing, a uh, really powerful impact on people. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, 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 the basic design of, of most interfaces is born from uh, graphic design initially. Um, and as you say, that, that probably precludes uh, the use of, of um, any form of acoustic uh, and, and it makes it very secondary. But um, uh, inevitably, we, we tend to think of, of sounds being a useful form of, of feedback. Um, we tend to get it in fairly unpleasant ways on things like buses when the doors are about to close. Um, but um, no doubt there are there are some clever ways of, of utilizing sound within within apps. Yeah, very much so. Um, and it, it in a way relates to my final example as well, um, which comes from well, really several worlds which have collided, but one of which is very much um, the world of sound design. Uh, and it was something that I spotted um, from the Dutch designer Iris van Herpen. Now, she showed a clothing collection in Paris uh, earlier this year, um, which uh, she described as being inspired by semantics, which is the study of sound waves. Uh, and again, we'll put a link in the, the show notes so that people can go and check out uh, what some of these creations look like. Um, but uh, let, let, me, let me interrupt you for a moment there, Marek. How, how is it that you came across this? Because I, I wasn't aware of your um, your interest in, in fashion design. <laughs> Which is, is understandable, you know, given the my usual mode of attire. Um, but yeah, the uh, uh, how did I come across this? Uh, this was from Design. Uh, which is a design publication that I've read for a number of years. And uh, I must confess that um, I do not have an especially um, strong interest in fashion per se, uh, but design always comes up with interesting things which perhaps come from outside of the realm of the stuff that I would normally be tracking. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why it interests me. And I think this just came up within uh, my uh, RSS feeds from them one day. And I was particularly struck by the imagery of it and that it had this link with how you... Um, transpose, if you like, between different mediums and that this uh, particular designer uh, had taken something which interested them, the world of, of sound waves, uh, and then found a way to visualize them and make them tangible in a garment. Uh, and if uh, listeners go and have a look, I think they'll get a, a very um, strong idea of just how that's been captured within the form of, of the fabric. Um, but just that notion that you've got these different worlds colliding here of audio and fashion and technology, uh, and that something has come out of it, which is a part of each of those worlds, uh, but also something which is unique unto itself. So, so to tell us more here, Mark, because the, the use of sound waves now, there are all sorts of different sound waves. You know, your, your heartbeat produces one sound wave. Um, a, a car coming to a, a screeching halt produces another. Um, birdsong is, is yet something completely different. And, and, and you know, we've talked about uh, music quite a lot today. And, and all, all the music that we've referenced has, has completely different sound waves. So how, how do these, you know, what was the choice of sound wave and how, how did it end up 
um, being brought into clothing. Well, I suppose this is one of the interesting things that happens when uh, something gets transposed from one medium to another, is that maybe you start to appreciate uh, properties of it which wouldn't necessarily have been especially remarkable within the originating medium of audio, um, because you start to look for the things which then have an impact within the medium that you're going to create something tangible in. Uh, and in this particular case, you know, they've obviously chosen quite sculptural forms of the, the sound wave. And it's something I suppose I've become a little bit more familiar with personally since we've been recording this podcast, because after each of these episodes, uh, I go off and look at the audio file which we've recorded. And of course, you can see all the different shapes in the, the sound. And we have various different um, sounds that we insert as part of that editing process to make that easier so that we can see uh, you know, for instance, if there was a, any point where we had to have a break during the, the podcast, we can easily identify that by putting in a very distinctive type of sound wave. And it just starts to get you to think about, you know, what happens when uh, a particular um, event uh, gets moved between different mediums and the sort of impact that has on how it might be used in a, a piece of design. So that's pretty fascinating. And, and I guess what's interesting already is is that you're already just actually, you know, when you're looking at the, the sound waves, you're actually looking at a representation of the sound wave. So, so then we end up with a representation of a representation um, uh, within uh, an article of clothing, which I, which I guess is, is quite an interesting way of looking at how inspiration, which is, you know, the very subject of, of today's episode, you know, takes you from, from something quite uh, separate uh, and, and you bring that into your particular field and, and do something uh, fairly striking and, and and interesting. Yeah, and I think that's when it can be at its most powerful is when you're able to make those sort of tangential leaps between different things. We talked about this in a whole episode dedicated to that concept of, of tangents um, in a previous edition of the podcast, which people might like to go uh, back and have a, a listen to. But I think this is a, a you know a nice example of how those different worlds can come together. But it can also have some quite specific practical applications as well. I mean, one of the things which um, it reminded me of when I was looking at this fashion collection was a project that uh, a group of designers called Berg, the British Experimental Rocket Group, I believe it stood for, which uh, unfortunately now uh, has disbanded. It, but they did a number of really memorable uh, digital design projects several years ago uh, and documented them all beautifully, uh, often using um, uh, original film that they'd produced as well. And there was one which was called Touch, uh, and they had a really specific problem to solve, which was that as uh, NFC um, emerged on mobile devices, which is the, the contactless technology which is being used for things like Apple Pay and, and Android Pay uh, for doing the, the Touch 2 payments at, uh, at checkouts, um, they were trying to understand how they could make uh, the experience of those transactions as seamless as possible. Uh, and they realized that they had to find a way to be able to visualize um, the actual shape of the NFC radio field 
which was being created by these contactless transactions so that they could then understand how that might inform the industrial design of the terminals uh, which were being used as the uh, the receiving end of these different payments uh, and they used some proprietary technologies they wired up uh, LEDs and uh, used some uh, special photography to be able to capture this and the end result is this video where they very beautifully show um, using uh, light and, and the way it's been captured in the in the video um, to show you the shape of the NFC radio field, which um, is created when you're doing something like one of those Apple Pay transactions. And for them, it meant that they were able to then think in a very different way about how they could design those terminals so that in that little half second of physical gesture that you make, you had the best possible experience uh, as a user. And it was one of those examples where you, know, you had to transpose between those different mediums so that they could get that sort of understanding, which would deliver a good customer experience at the end of it. I think, Marek, one of the things that has struck me from, from our conversation today is the amount of incredibly complex technologies that are being brought into play uh, behind the scenes, um, while what appears on the surface is is simple. Um, and um, it, it's, it's quite incredible some, some of the uh, some of the subjects that you know you, you really need to go off and, and, and study in depth for for a couple of years in order to 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 really understand um, how they work um, and, and yet you know to the user it's it's just something uh, wonderfully simple um, and, and I guess that's really where we need to, to get to with, with a lot of these things um, but but that really for me has, has been uh, very striking and, and, and fascinating. I think you're absolutely right with that. I mean, it, it speaks in many ways to one of the macro challenges within digital industry at the moment for people who are working as practitioners in this field, that we're not only seeing um, a real uh, multiplication of the different industries which are now uh, coming into contact with digital practitioners because uh, digital is becoming so pervasive in the way it's enabling things within all kinds of industries now, which is giving rise to this need to be able to assimilate information about all kinds of traditions and businesses which perhaps uh, you wouldn't previously have come into contact with as a digital practitioner. But similarly, there's uh, a real um, explosion in the number of different digital touch points which we're using to engage with with those kind of services from all of these different kinds of industries. So where before you may have been able to specialize and silo yourself, for instance, within the world of, say, um, PC software design or mobile software design, uh, now we need to equip ourselves with an ability to understand all of the, the nuances of those different touch points, or at least have an understanding of the vocabularies which are relevant to those different touch points. And at their best now, I think digital practitioners um, succeed when they're able to do that, not only in a way which allows them to have a knowledge of those different touch points individually, but actually to come up with new ways of weaving them all together into seamless experiences which just feel natural to the user. Um, so while uh, from an end user perspective, these things now tend to be easier to adopt and, and get up to speed with, actually for the people creating them, the challenge is just becoming uh, ever more more complex. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm conscious that um, one of the tasks we have left to do this afternoon uh, is to go off and in fact answer the very question which prompted 
this podcast because Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. is the time at which uh, our recurring question comes up in Basecamp every week to ask us what has inspired us. So it might be time to to bring things to a close. Um, but I hope it's given listeners a, a sense of some of the things uh, that we've been looking at to um, not only uh, keep things current within the MEX initiative, but also to expand uh, our knowledge into other areas as well. Um, and perhaps it's something that we can come back and revisit again in a, a future episode in a few months' time and see what other inspirations have come out of, of Alex's question. So is there a particular source that you'll be going to to uh, have a look for your next inspiration? Or do you have a variety of ones that you pull from? Yeah, I don't have any specific sources. I try to keep my eyes open. Um, I read about and, and, you know, have a look on social media, of course, but also just it could be something as simple as just walking down the road and, and having a look at what's 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 going on um, that can be uh, a source of inspiration. So it's it's pretty much wide open. How about you? Uh, yeah, much the same. Um, uh, you know, I have uh, RSS feeds that uh, I read most days to keep track of a few different sources. But um, I think a lot of this is just about having your eyes and ears open for interesting things uh, and then finding some which relate to um, what we're doing within the MEX initiative or might uh, expand the conversation out and, and make good candidates for this question within Basecamp. Uh, but what I might propose perhaps is that uh, we actually um, broaden this out a, a little bit. Uh, and while it's been a great thing internally for us as a team to share these, uh, maybe we could also um, post up our next few on our Twitter feeds, which we'll include a, a link to in the show notes, uh, so that the listeners to the podcast can take a look uh, and share some of their own perhaps. What do you think? Sounds like a great idea. Splendid. Well, it's been lovely catching up as always, Alex, and uh, we will be back with another episode of Next Design Talk in the not-too-distant future. Thanks, Marek. Until the next one. And that's it for this edition of Mex Design Talk. Don't forget those show notes where you can find links to all of the references that we mentioned at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Do please also get in touch with your feedback. You can find links to do that by email via mobileuserexperience.com or send us a tweet at mexfeed on Twitter. And to play us out, here's the tangential inspiration of Cameron's Lament in C minor by Deno Music. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Doo-doo.